the Christian beliefs. We've already discussed the doctrine of the Trinity, creation by God, biblical inspiration and inerrancy, salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the bodily visible return of Christ. Now today we're going to discuss the substitutionary death of Christ. Uh, with that, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just pray, Lord, that you just pour your Spirit upon me today, that you anoint me to preach your Word, and that uh, my own uh, faulty ideas and my own faulty reasoning would not get in the way of your truth. So I pray, Lord, that you use me as your instrument today, uh, an imperfect messenger, but to proclaim a, a perfect message, your Word. I just pray, Lord, that I not, not corrupt or pervert that. Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you would right now be preparing hearts to receive your word. Not only to receive it into, into our minds, but to receive it into our hearts and to apply your truths to our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that 2,000 years ago when a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus died on the cross, that there was much, much, much more than just the death of a human being. There was much more involved. And that on that cross, on a hill called Calvary, the price was paid for our sins so that if we would trust in Jesus for salvation, heaven would be ours. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, we still, I, I made a, an error when I was making the, the announcements. We do actually need two volunteers for Children's Church. If someone would like to go on back, appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, uh, the substitutionary death of Christ. Before we talk about the true view of Christ's death, and, and, and Christ's death on the cross was vitally important, Paul got to the point where, you know, when he was going to go visit the Corinthians, he told them, you know, the Corinthians, they were in Greek, Corinth was in Greek, in Greece, and uh, they were all entrenched with Greek philosophy. And so he told them, you know, when I get over there, I don't want to debate all your philosophy. I don't want to talk philosophy. I don't want to talk about anything but Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul was a brilliant man. And a great thinker like that, if this was the number one thing he liked to talk about, was Christ crucified, then I think we need to take a closer look at the substitutionary death of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary, and find out exactly what transpired on that cross. First off, I would like us to look at five different false views of Christ's death. I don't know if anybody could tell, but it, I was sitting in the back and there's some bugs that started bothering me and they followed me up here. So there's like, I just counted like four or five of them. So I'm going to be distracted throughout this message. I don't know, maybe it's my cologne or something. I don't know what they're so interested in. 
But if you see me clapping up here, I'm not, I'm not getting Pentecostal on you. I'm just trying to kill a few bugs. Okay, false views of Christ's death. There's lots of them, but we'll just, we'll just center on five of them. Number one, the accidental death theory. This is a false view of Christ's death, that Christ's death was an unexpected tragedy. Here was this young Jewish guy, a carpenter, great teacher. People loved his teaching. He gained a big following, and then his enemies were jealous of him, and they put him to death. What a tragedy. The end of a great career. Kind of, kind of like uh, uh, James Dean or Jimmy Dean, whatever they call him, the guy that was, uh, used to like to drive fast cars, the actor. It was just a real shame, you know. Guy right in the prime of life, unexpected tragedy. That's not what the Bible teaches about Christ's death. Christ's death was much, much more than an accidental, unexpected tragedy. It was much, much more than just a life cut short. The second false view is the payment to Satan theory. Payment to Satan theory. Now, some people who think that because Satan got man to fall and Satan holds us in his grip, that when Jesus paid the price on the cross, he walked up to Satan, who was in charge of this prison, and he paid Satan the price, the blood he shed on the cross, and then Satan uh, released those who would trust in Jesus. But the fact of the matter is that God doesn't owe Satan a dime. God never had to pay Satan even a penny. Now, granted, Satan did have us in this prison, and Jesus did come and release us. But don't confuse that with Jesus paying the price to Satan, okay? What Jesus did was he walked up to Satan through his death and his resurrection from the dead, and he beat the tar out of him. He slapped him silly, he threw him down, he kicked him, and then he stepped on his head and crushed his head. And then he released us. Jesus was not involved in a business transaction with Lucifer. God owes Satan nothing. Now, Jesus did pay the price, but the price that he paid, he paid to God's holiness and God's justice. Our God is a holy God. He's a just God. He can have no sin come before him. God is so just and so holy that he cannot forgive sin unless it's been paid for in full. And so Jesus Christ paid the price to God's holiness and God's justice, not to Lucifer. God doesn't owe Lucifer a dime. Uh, the third false theory of Christ's death is called the moral influence theory. By the way, the next two theories are real popular among liberal theologians those who don't really believe the Bible is God's Word. And, uh, and the, the fifth view, the swoon theory, is also popular among them. But the moral influence theory and the example theory are very closely related, and you'll find a lot of liberal theologians who deny the deity of Christ, deny the Bible's God's Word, but still make their living from this book. Um, they'll hold to uh, theories that are very similar to this, if not uh, this theory in itself. The moral influence theory is the view that Christ's death merely leads us to live better lives. Now, by the way, some of these theories, there might be an element of truth to it. Okay? 
For instance, Christ's death on the cross should lead us to live better lives. Uh, the example theory, Christ's death on the cross should encourage us to be willing to die for what is right. At the same time, and Christ's death in, to some degree can be viewed as a tragedy, even though it was the greatest victory in the history of mankind, it was tragic that God's own son had to die such a shameful and horrible and painful death because that was the only way that the price could be paid for our sins so that we could receive heaven as a free gift. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the main thrust, the main significance of uh, Christ's death is missed by all five of these false views of Christ's death, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying that with some of these, like the moral influence theory and the example theory, that there's no truth whatsoever to them. What I am saying is they do not exhaust what occurred at the uh, crucifixion, nor are they the main significance of the crucifixion. And we'll get to that, what it is, the true significance when we talk about the true view of Christ's death. But the moral influence theory, the view that Christ's death leads us to live better lives. In other words, these guys would say that you save yourself. Man saves himself by good works. And Jesus' death on the cross, the way he's our Savior is he, by dying on the cross, that just makes us think, oh, wow, boy, God loved us so much that uh, he had Jesus die on the cross for us. And, and that's, that, that should just make us want to go out there and live better lives. Um, and, and basically, he didn't die for our sins in any literal sense. Uh, it's just that this should encourage us to live better lives. The example theory is real close, closely related to that. Christ's death encourages us to be willing to die for what is right. Jesus stood up for the people. He was, he was a friend to the poor people, to the outcast and stuff. And the Jewish religious leaders were, were uh, ripping people off and they were putting people down. And uh, so uh, Jesus was willing to stand up for him, die for what is right. Therefore, we should be willing to stand up and uh, die for a good cause. And uh, the people that hold this view, by the way, some of the causes they consider good causes are uh, pretty out to lunch. Uh, some of the causes they're talking about, some of, uh, some of them believe that we need a one-world government, that uh, we have to go on marches to protect a person's right to uh, kill babies before they're born, or uh, protect the right of uh, men to have sex with other men. And uh, it just amazes me that when you reject the basic Christian truths as they are taught from the Scriptures, how your whole concept of right and wrong gets twisted around, gets, gets, gets totally inverted. Um, Jerry Falwell is an ordained Baptist minister, and so is Jesse Jackson. Both ordained Baptist ministers, but because one of them, Jerry Falwell, believes the Bible is, is God's word without error and accepts it as truth, not only are, and whereas Jesse Jackson rejects it as God's infallible word and sees it as one of many books and sees that uh, many different religions lead to God, because of their religious differences of opinion, uh, their view on what is right and what is wrong are also worlds apart. Uh, Falwell's against the portion. Jackson is for it. Uh, Falwell uh, believes in a limited government, a free society. Uh, Jackson believes in big government. He doesn't 
come right out and say it, but he basically believes socialism is the best form of government. Uh, Jackson, Jesse Jackson is pro-gay rights, Falwell is against it. And uh, it just amazes me that people who reject the theological teachings of the Scriptures, uh, eventually they reject as well the moral teachings of the Scriptures, and what is right for them uh, is actually condemned uh, in the Scriptures. But the example there, Christ's death encourages us to be willing to die for what is right. Uh, we should be willing to die for what is right, but a lot more than that happened on the cross of Calvary. Jesus was more than just an example. Jesus was more than just a way shower. Jesus was the way. Okay? He didn't just say, hey, do what I do and you'll get to heaven. He looked at Doug Platt. He said, Doug, forget it. Give up, man. You can't get yourself to heaven. You can't even follow my example. But I'm going to do it all for you. I'm going to take your cross. I tell you, that cross that Jesus took was supposed to be for Barabbas. Barabbas was like us. He was a slimy sinner. He was a sinful man. And he deserved death. But Jesus took that cross for him just as he took that cross for us. Jesus was more than just a way shower. Jesus is the way. John 14:6. he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, the fifth false view is the swoon theory. Look at the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 34. The, the reason why, okay, the swoon theory is the view that Jesus only swooned or fainted on the cross. He didn't really die. They took him down. They thought he was dead. He was just unconscious. He got revived in the tomb, appeared alive to his disciples, and uh, they thought, whoa, he must have risen from the dead. They just misunderstood the whole thing, and then the, the whole legend called Christianity got started. That's, that, that's the, the view. Now, why would anybody come up with such a stupid view? I'll tell you the reason. There's a good reason why people would come up with a dumb view like this. Okay? And that is you had many intellectuals, many trained theologians who studied the Word but did not want to believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and that He had risen from the dead. They refused to believe that. However, there was a whole mess of evidence that they just could not deny eyewitness testimonies of people who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Paul mentioned there was over 500 of them. And these liberal theologians admit Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15. And they admit Paul was an honest man. Paul was a serious, very religious Jewish man who would just not make an outright lie and say 500 people witnessed Christ risen from the dead if, if he did not in fact believe that. And so in other words, these guys wanted to number one be... Uh, these guys, number one, wanted to reject the resurrection, but number two, admitted that there was overwhelming evidence, eyewitness testimony for the resurrection. So they had to come up with a theory, how could Jesus be seen alive by over 500 people after he had been crucified? And so they came up with a bogus theory that he only fainted on the cross. Uh, look at John 19, verse 34. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Now, see what happened here on crucifixion. When a, when a person is crucified, you know, you, you, you lose a lot of blood. I mean, the nails are pounded into your, actually, right at the bottom of your palm, right in between the palm, the ending of the palm, the bottom of the palm, and the top of the wrist. Nails are pounded into their big spikes, pounded into your feet. Uh, with Christ, they also put a crown of thorn on his, thorn, thorns on his head to uh, mock him for his claim to be the king of Israel. Uh, horrible, horrible things done. But the interesting thing is the thing that kills you is the fact that your arms are in the same position. And they're in such a position that they have to support the, the weight, entire weight of your body in such a way that it makes it harder to breathe. That's why it's such a long death. You don't die by bleeding to death. You actually die because it gets harder and harder to breathe until eventually you cannot breathe anymore. And so some guys would spend two or three days on the cross and die. Christ, probably because of the horrible beating that he received, plus the fact that he was voluntarily surrendering his life, it took six hours to die. But, and you know, the, the whipping that he received wasn't normal for crucifixion victims, uh, that was Pilate's attempt to appease the Jews so that they wouldn't crucify him. And when that didn't work, then he turned them over for crucifixion. And by the way, the scourging would, at the end of the Roman whips, they would have about four separate tails or so. So every time you got whipped, it was like getting four lashes, not one. Okay? And then they would put little jagged pieces of bone or metal on the end of it. The Romans were experts on torture. You know, these guys were real, um, you know, they had a real lot of attention to detail, and they kept inventing more and more creative ways to cause uh, horrible pain and suffering to people. And so with these kinds of whips, with the jagged, edged bone or metal, it would actually dig under a person's skin and literally tear off pieces of flesh. Most people who were scourged, uh, did not a good portion of them at least did not survive it. The infections that would set in later on would kill them. Uh, but Pilate did not want to crucify Christ. He was probably the first Jewish man that, that Pilate ever respected. A man who was not uh, begging him for mercy. A man who stood there courageously before him. Pilate did not like the Pharisees, didn't respect them. Although they had... Uh, a lot of complaints on him before Caesar. And so Pilate was in a world of trouble, but he figured, this, this young Jewish man's in good enough shape, I think he's going to survive a scourging. Maybe if we get him whipped, maybe then they'll leave him alone. But that wasn't the case, and eventually Christ was crucified. So keep, this, keep in mind, this is what crucifixion was about. Now, the reason why they broke the legs of the other two guys on the cross, because they were still alive. They did not want these guys to hang on the cross uh, overnight because the Jewish Passover was coming up. So what you do is you break the leg. Now see, again, the Romans here, attention to detail, they want to prolong a man's suffering, they want to make a death as painful as possible, they put a little block of wood under your feet. Okay? And by putting a little block of feet, it gives your place of feet to rest. And you would think, well, that's nice. Make the guy a little more comfortable. What it actually does is it enables the guy with the nails in his feet, with all the pain, to push off every now and then. See, because at the angle of your arms, you can't breathe. 
So when you push off, you get just a little, little bit of breath. You're able to breathe just a little bit more. And by doing that, a guy might last three or four days on the cross. So in other words, they take what normally would be a six, seven, eight-hour horrible death, and they extend it for three or four days. Just, just total brutality, no mercy whatsoever. However, so that the Jews wouldn't riot, if it would violate, if it would make their holy day unclean, they would just walk up and break the guys. You know, Roman soldiers, it was nothing to them. They were killing guys left and right. They just walk up and snap a guy's leg, break the guy's leg, and then the guy's not able to push off anymore. And within minutes, death arrives. Within minutes. They're hanging on the cross in that position. Death comes very, very, very quickly. Uh, they came to Christ and they looked and they said, Why break his leg? This guy's obviously dead. But being a good soldier, you've got to confirm that he's dead. So just in case Christ was only appeared to be dead and wasn't actually dead, the guy took a spear and thrust it into Christ's side. And this, this Roman soldier, you know, the Romans ruled the world. They were experts at what they did. He knew what a lethal blow was. So he gave Christ... A, uh, pierced his side with a spear so that if he was alive, that would kill him. Okay? And so that's just kind of the confirmation that, that uh, if he wasn't dead before, he will be dead now. Now, when John, re when John records this in verse 34, John said, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Now, John didn't really understand that, and so in the next verse, he, he reminds his readers, hey, basically, I saw this. You know, I don't know what it means. I saw it, and I just recorded it. Now, he remembers throughout the Old Testament, there was always water, washing, ceremonial washing, uh, washings to make things ceremonially clean, okay? Water was throughout the Old Testament, but also blood. Every animal sacrifice that there ever was, there was blood. Blood and water. Blood and water for spiritual cleansing. He sees blood and water come from Christ's side, so he says, hey, maybe that's it. Maybe God wants to tell us. And, and that could be. Maybe in the Old Testament, Christ was pointing forward to the day when the ultimate Lamb of God would be sacrificed on the cross for our sins, and we would see that blood and water. But there's something else here. John didn't know it back then. Medicine had not, uh, medical science had not proven it at that point. Now we know that if you stab a body and what comes out appears to be red and then a clear liquidy substance that looks like water, there's, I think there's two different possibilities that it could be, but both possibilities, you, what you still have, that body was a corpse before the spear entered into it. It is evidence that whoever is being stabbed, whatever body is being stabbed, it is a corpse. The person has already died. Otherwise, you would just see the regular flow of blood. You would not see the separation of blood and a liquidy, clear substance. In other words, Christ did, in fact, die on the cross. And it's, uh, we have eyewitness testimony and uh, all the medical biblical and historical evidence backs the fact that he did die on a cross. Now just suppose, just suppose that he somehow survived the cross, which we've proven that to be false anyway. Then Jesus somehow 
rises from the dead. All right, well, he, he didn't die, so he, he comes to, after a couple of days, in a cool, damp uh, tomb. His body is torn to shreds from the whipping. He's got holes in his hands and his feet. He's got a pierced side. He's got puncture wounds in his head from the crown of thorns. And somehow he manages to gain the strength to move the rock, which is pretty much impossible to do as far as I understand from inside the tomb, and overpower the Roman soldiers. But then some would say, well, I think Matthew was lying. There weren't even any Roman soldiers. Okay, so even if there wasn't any Roman soldiers, somehow he's able to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, walking around on feet with holes in them, in desperate need of medical attention, medical attention, and even with medical attention today, he probably wouldn't have, have lasted, let alone back then. Now, seeing a guy, if Jesus did survive that, which is obviously a big if, because all the evidence points against that, but if he did, what the apostles, the apostles would not have been aroused to worship him they would have felt motivated to pity him. What you have here is a guy who's... There's nothing left to him. He's torn apart. He's beaten. He's battered. He does not look like a victorious Savior who has conquered death for mankind. So now these guys are saying, Hey, I'm willing to be thrown to the lions for you. You've proven it to me that you have conquered death. And so now I can go to the lions... Hey, if Jesus Christ did not die and did not really rise from the dead to immortality, uh, then none of those Christians would have been willing to suffer horrible deaths that, that history records that they did suffer. Uh, but the reason why that they were willing to suffer those deaths was because they knew that he had fully conquered death and would never die again. He uh, was triumphal and had conquered death for mankind. So all five of these theories are false. The accidental death theory, the payment to Satan theory, the moral influence theory, the example theory, and the swoon theory. So let's take a look at the true view of Christ's death. Uh, the, the number one key word is that of substitution. Substitution. Well, we know what substitution is. I mean, it... If you're going to school and your teacher calls in sick, they bring in a substitute teacher, somebody to take their place. If you're watching a, a baseball game and the pitcher's getting, giving up too many hits, they take him out and they put in a substitute, somebody in his place. And that's what it was with Christ. Christ took our place on the cross of Calvary. He took our punishment for us. Also, the idea of substitution, but also the idea of sacrifice. Just like the Old Testament sacrifices, the lamb was substituted for the person who deserved punishment. And in the same way, Jesus Christ was our substitute and was sacrificed for us. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. It's talking about the fact that we are saved, we are spiritually healed by the fact that Jesus Christ 
took our sins in his body on the cross so that he would take our punishment for us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Actually, that should read, but made alive by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. But Jesus Christ died once for all. That's why we don't uh, celebrate like, like the Catholic Mass here. I have a lot of people that I know that are, that are Catholics that love Jesus, that are saved, and then I know Catholics that aren't saved, just as there are, are Baptists and Presbyterians that are saved and Baptists and Presbyterians that are not saved. But at the Catholic Church, there's a reoffering of the sacrifice of Christ over and over again in an unbloody manner. Uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died for man's sins once for all. The just one. He alone was totally righteous. He alone was without blemish. He alone was without sin. And he died on the cross for our sins. By the way, the Passover lamb, when you sacrifice the Passover lamb so that your household would be passed over for judgment, uh... In Egypt, when God was slaying the firstborn Egyptian uh, son of each household as a punishment because they would not let Israel go, the Israelites sacrificed the Passover lamb. They took the blood of the lamb and applied it to the door so that whoever applied the blood of the lamb to the door of their household and sacrificed the Passover lamb, the angel of death would pass over their house for judgment. Well, Jesus Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, He is our Passover Lamb, and He has been sacrificed. In other words, if you trust in Jesus for salvation, the blood of Jesus has been applied to your life so that when it comes time for judgment, you will be passed over for judgment. But the Passover Lamb, He had to be without blemish. Jesus was without sin. And He could not have a broke, any broken bone whatsoever. You know, this way an Israelite would not say, well, if I've got to sacrifice a lamb this Passover, uh, why should I take one of my healthy ones? I'll get this one over here that's got the broken leg. He's not doing me any good anyway. It had to be something that was worth, uh, worth something to the people that they were sacrificing. It's the same way with the Lord Jesus Christ. He, could, he had to be without blemish and without any broken bones to be the Passover lamb. And so the true view of Christ's death, he took our punishment for us, the just one dying for those who are unjust. By the way, some people will try to tell you, you know, you are so worthy. Uh, you, you are so special that, that Jesus, you are worth Jesus dying for. Okay, let me say two things. Number one, man was created in God's image. That's pretty special right there. And the fact that we have fallen, we've marred that image, but the fact is, you are still special. When you die, uh, they are going to perform a real nice funeral and a nice burial that we don't do for animals. Man is above the animals. Uh, at the same time, recognizing the worth and the dignity of human life and the sanctity of human life, that man was created in God's image and is above the animals, uh, the fact of the matter is, man is also fallen. And the fact of the matter is, when Jesus Christ died on the cross 
for us, when he paid the price so that we could be saved, the fact of the matter is he did not get his money's worth. God's love for us poured out through the sacrifice on Christ on the cross is not God's God loving that which is lovable. It shows us God's ability to love that which is unlovable. And so the emphasis is on the ultimate worth of Christ on the cross, the fact that he was willing to die for those who rebelled against him and turned their backs on him. Uh, but Christ took, his, took our punishment for us. He died in our place. And this speaks of substitutionary sacrifice. God punished Jesus for our sins. Um, look at Matthew 1. We're not going to be able to look at all of these passages. Um, take a look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It's talking about Mary, and it says, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name it basically was Yeshua, what we would call Joshua. That was his Hebrew name. And it means the Lord is salvation. And so Jesus Christ would save his people from their sins. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All these passages bring up the idea of substitution and sacrifice. Jesus Christ was sacrificed in our place. He took our punishment for us uh, so that we could be saved. God is so just, He cannot forgive sin unless it's been paid for in full. And so Jesus Christ, out of love, took our punishment on the cross of Calvary. By the way, some people have asked me, how could Jesus, just dying on the cross for six hours, be a substitute for all of mankind spending all eternity in the flames of hell. And what we need to recognize there is, number one, the, the sacrifice, Jesus, is ultimately worthy. Okay? So an ultimately worthy sacrifice, just six hours on the cross, that lasts, an ultimately worthy sacrifice that lasts just six hours, is so worthy that it can cover all the sins of mankind and the punishment of the eternal flames of hell, the ultimate punishment, our sin. Sin, by the way, is rebellion against an ultimately worthy being. Rebellion against God, therefore, it demands the ultimate in, in uh, punishment, the eternal flames of hell. But the ultimately worthy sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, that worth can atone for the sins of mankind just through six hours on the cross. Second Corinthians 5 Verse 15, and he, that's Jesus, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so Jesus Christ died for us all. Verse 21, he, meaning God the Father, made him, Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so God placed the sins of mankind upon Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and then God punished Jesus in our place, so that if we trust in Him for salvation, we receive His righteousness as a free gift, and we're declared righteous. Uh, basically, you know, it takes a righteous life to get, you, to get a person to heaven, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ 
lived that perfect life that we could not live. And his sin was imputed or credited to, to our, our sin. His sin. He had no sin. Our sin was credited to his account. And when you trust in him for salvation, his righteousness is credited to our account. Um, we don't have time to look at Hebrews 10. Uh, a real good passage talking about the fact that he died on the cross once for all. Uh, uh, for the sins of mankind. Look at Isaiah 53. This was not something new. Even the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come and he would suffer as a lamb before its shearers and that he would die for the sins of mankind. Look at Isaiah 53 and verses 5 to 7. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So he died for our sins. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. John the Baptist, by the way, loved to read Isaiah. You could see that from the, the teachings that he proclaimed. And from this passage, he knew that the Messiah would be God's holy lamb who would take away the sins of mankind. So in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, and said, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sins of the world. And so, I'll look a little further in Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then in verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was predicted 700 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth. Isaiah talks about a glorious Messiah who will reign over the kings of the earth and bring the kingdom of God to earth. But he also says that this Messiah will be like a lamb brought before those who will butcher him and put him to death. And that he would be crushed and our sins would be placed upon him and he would die as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. Now I want to say, mention something else here. Jesus Christ died on the cross not only for the sins of the church, but he died on the cross for all mankind. And there are people who are called five-point Calvinists who believe that Jesus didn't die for all men. He died only for the church. And make a long story short, um, God then regenerates us, and that makes us believe. To put it in layman's terms, 
Uh, they do not believe that a person is free to accept or reject Jesus as Savior. God kind of zaps you, okay? I disagree with that view. The Scriptures are real clear. Jesus died for all mankind, and He draws all men. But we have the freedom to accept or reject His forgiveness and salvation by accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, but there's many passages. John 1.29, we already talked about. Uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2, but we'll just take the last four verses, uh, four words of uh, verse 1 and then verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation. All that word means is satisfaction. His, his sacrifice, the sacrifice of Himself on the cross satisfied God's holiness and God's justice and God's wrath. Okay? And He Himself is the satisfaction for our sins... And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. It does not mean that the whole world is saved, but it means uh, salvation is available to the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, even the atheist down the block who denies Jesus as Savior, even the Mormons down the block. And that's why we need to get out and talk to all men to all mankind and tell them about Jesus because Jesus died for all. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says there that the Lord is not slow about His promise of the second coming of Christ, but He is patient. He's basically, He desires that none should perish and that all should come to repentance. And so God, if God... What it amounts to, God desires for all men to be saved, but He's given us the freedom to say, no, we don't want your Jesus, and no, we don't want your heaven. You know, one time we were in paradise. Our great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, were in paradise, and we said no to God, we don't want your paradise. And now we get a second shot at paradise through the Lord Jesus Christ. But most people look at the blood-splattered hands, and they look at the blood-splattered feet, and they say, no, we don't want your paradise. And, uh, you know, but the thing, a lot of people want, a lot of people want to experience joy forever and ever, but they do not want to bend the knee to God. The fact of the matter is, there's only two choices, heaven or hell. There's no in-between. You either worship God and serve Him, or you face the eternal torment of the flames of hell. Uh, but Jesus died uh, for the sins of all mankind. First Timothy 2, 1-6, we don't have time to turn there either, but there Paul tells us to pray for all men, for kings who are in authority, for judges, for rulers over men. By that time, at that particular time, there was hardly anybody who was a ruler who was a Christian. So he's obviously telling us, 
Pray for all men, believers and non-believers. Pray for all people on earth. But then he says in that passage, that same passage, the same phrase, all men, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, and that Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom, a ransom price, to set, to set us free, gave himself a ransom for all men. So Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he died for the sins of all mankind. Now, by the way, that sounds real nice at first, but you've got to really recognize. Recognize how, how big and how wide God's love is. Yes, you know, Neil can sit down and say, praise God, Jesus died for my sins. That's great. Phil Franz can say, praise God, he died for my sins. But we need to recognize, don't water down God's grace or God's love. Jesus also died for Adolf Hitler's sins. Jesus also died for Ted Bundy's sins. I'm not saying these guys are in heaven. I don't know their hearts, and I, I don't think there's hardly any evidence whatsoever. There is no evidence that Adolf Hitler ever bended the knee to Jesus. He was depraved from, from start to finish. I'm not saying these guys are in heaven, but if we really believe in God's love and God's grace, if we really believe what the Bible says, then we have to recognize there might be some people who are as ruthless as them that Jesus Christ saved. Now, when He saves you, He cleans you up and He changes you. But the fact of the matter is we cannot water down God's love or God's grace. Now, you might say, yeah, but Fernandez, Hitler don't deserve to go to heaven. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is Phil Fernandez don't deserve to go to heaven. The fact of the matter is you don't deserve to go to heaven. The fact of the matter is, there was only one guy that when he got baptized, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The fact of the matter is, only Jesus perfectly pleased the Father. Only Jesus could earn heaven. The fact of the matter is, we all deserve the flames of hell. The only sin that's going to keep people out of heaven, by the way, is the sin of refusing to accept God's one way of salvation. Refusal to accept Jesus as Savior. Uh, but Jesus Christ died for the sins of all mankind. I'm just going to run through the rest, just give you an overview. The verses are listed on the handout. You could look them up when you get home. Uh, but we need to recognize that Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God. 